Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream, or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Well, today is Kingdom Builder Sunday, and uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about about generosity and giving. Um, But let me just kind of give you a little bit of a a heads up. We have... We had been giving these out for the last several weeks, and it was a commitment card. And I'm just, I'm just asking you to hold on to this till the end of the service. At the end of the service, you'll have an opportunity. There'll be ushers in the back where you can just basically drop the card in with your commitment for this year. Um, we're asking that you take this card. There's a little tear-off portion. You tear off the bottom. Keep the bottom for yourself as a reminder. You can put it on your refrigerator as you, as you, if you want as a reminder. And then this is the part, the top part is what you leave with us. Um, And as for our commitment to Kingdom Builders for 2022, our commitment this year, the goal this year is $450,000. So we're excited about what God can do through you, through us to reach the world. Kingdom Builders has been uh, amazing. For the la- in the last four years since we started Kingdom Builders, we had, just to give you a little bit of a back, back story, what's happening behind all of this. Uh, from the very beginning of Life Church, we felt a conviction that, that if if, uh, that we need to be a missionary-minded church. That's how we thought. We need to be consumed and, and, and desiring to reach the world for Jesus Christ, right? And so from the very beginning, we said, well, if we're going to ask people to tithe, to be faithful in their tithing, then we as a church are going to be faithful in our giving as well. And so from the very beginning, 10% of anything that comes in, we take it and we say, this doesn't belong to us. This belongs to missions, and so we give it away. It, goes, it supports missionaries all around the world. We've been doing this for the last 16 years. Um, over the years, missionaries have come and said, hey, we've got this project, the thing we want to do, and, and, you know, and generally what happens is we hear this, my heart breaks, I want to do, but I just know that I can't come every weekend here and say, hey, guys, another project, will you give to this? And then, hey, guys, another project, will you give to that? It would just, you would get worn out with all of the asks for projects. And so four years ago, we felt like the Lord just inspired us to go ahead and start this thing called Kingdom Builders, which we call it our missions accelerating tool. Basically, that's all it is. It's just a tool to accelerate missions around the world, and it's project-based. And so there are projects that we select over uh, each year, different projects, and then we fund those projects that year. So we take the donations that year, then we fund them that very year, that same year, and, uh, and then that's how we see the, the kingdom of God expanding around the world. And so in the last four years, you, Life Church, you've given $1.4 million to Kingdom Builders alone. I mean, that's, that's worth celebrating. That's pretty, that's pretty phenomenal for a church our size. We're not that big, actually, of a church. And yet, you have been incredibly generous. And I just want to thank you for that. And if you add that plus what, what in the last four years has been given to, uh, you know, through the other means of, of funding missions, we have, Life Church, you have given over $2 million to missions. $2 million has come in in the last four years to this building and has exited the building. And that's because of you and your generosity. And I just want to thank you so much for that. You are amazing. You are amazing. You are amazing. Thank you for your generosity. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about giving though. And that just, this doesn't mean that I don't appreciate your generosity, but I think sometimes we need to be reminded of why we do this, right? In fact, I don't ever title my sermons. When I prepare my sermons, I never title them. I was, we come up with a theme for the series, and like last, last series was identity. 
So that was our series, type, series title. And then each week, the five weeks of identity, I just say identity part one, identity part two, identity part three. I never give it a title per se. But this time I decided to give a title to my sermon just because I want to be a little bit provocative. Okay? And here's my title. It's, uh, it's asking you a question, basically. What do you do when you have a lot? And the implication is a lot of stuff, money, wealth, whatever. What do you do when you have a lot? And so for you in Cedar Rapids and for you in Wilton, I'm asking you the same question. Like, you can't hide behind the camera because I'm asking you the same question. Okay, what do you do when you have a lot? Now, I realize that that's kind of a subjective term because, you know, how, how do you know what is a lot? How do you know what is a little is, is very subjective. You know, you, you, uh, it, it floats between, you know, it's, it's comparison, right? You, like, I, like I, I would say I have a lot, but then if I was in the room with Bill Gates, I would say I have, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm a beggar, I'm poor, right? So, so it's very subjective when you compare it that way, right? And so what do you do when you have a lot? <laughs> I, know, I know what some of you are thinking right now. Some of you are like, Phew. thank God, finally I can come to Life Church where he's not preaching at me because <laughs> I don't have a lot, right? But I think it's important for us to understand because it's a very subjective thing when I say, what do you do when you have a lot? And so why don't we look at this a little bit more objectively? Like, try to understand who we are as a, as, a, as a culture and as a Western people, who we are in comparison to the rest of the world, right? Um, so, there's a little comparison. I got, a, I got a, a, a slide up here. I want you to imagine there's 100 stick people on this, on this frame, and I want you to imagine that the 7 point whatever billion people on the face of the earth are represented by these 100 stick people right here, okay? This is the entire world's population, Okay? So if that's true, then 70 of these people right here have never met Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Now that should present a problem for us if we call ourselves a church who believe in the Great Commission because the Great Commission says to us that we must be passionate about reaching those 70 people who have yet to hear the name of Jesus Christ. We must be passionate about that. And it's why we do things like kingdom builders. It's why we are determined on, on giving as much money as we can to missions because we want to see those 70 people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Of those 100 people, 51 would be women and 49 would be children, which kind of dispels this myth that there is someone out there for you. <laughs> there is for 49 of you there are, but there's... A, there's there's two women they're going to go without because there's only 49 men. Anyways, uh, <clears throat> it has nothing to do with anything. 80, 80 would live in substandard housing. So think about the house that you live in and um, think about 80% of the world that don't even approximate what you have. 80 would have no running water or electricity. 70 would not be able to read or write. They're illiterate. 50 would be malnourished or very hungry. So, and this is not about guilt-inducing, okay? Because I'm not trying to guilt anybody. Guilt, there's no benefit in guilt whatsoever. But it, it's important for us to understand this, that you're going to leave church this morning, you're probably going to go home and have yourself a nice little lunch. And there's 50% of the world that 
doesn't have that opportunity. They're starving, they're hungry. One of this 100 are starving to death. Usually it's a child that's starving to death. 1% of the world's population is starving to death. Now what's fascinating about these 100 people is that only six of them would actually constitute Americans. So 6% of the world is us, the Americans. But here's what's interesting. Those same six possess half of the world's wealth. So, objectively speaking, objectively speaking, by comparison, you and I have a lot. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. We have a lot. We have a lot. And you may not feel that way, and I get it, because you might be here right now, you might be struggling to pay the bills and whatnot, but objectively speaking, every single one of us has a lot. In fact, here's some real Twitter posts uh, that kind of help us see that we really do have a lot. Um, uh, Let's go to the first one. Some guy tweeted that, I hate this. I have to get out of my car and go into the bank to withdraw more than $500. Like, I have to take $500 out, and I can't do it at the window. I can't do it through the, through the ATM. I actually have to get out of my car and go in the bank. This is such a hardship. Another one says, so frustrating to get home from the grocery store and not be able to fit all the food in the fridge. <laughs> I know you're laughing because you're like me. I'm guilty, right? I get home. We buy groceries and we realize we have last week's groceries in there and they're old and it doesn't fit. So we take the last week's groceries and we throw it out and put the fresh groceries in. And again, that's such a hardship. Here's another one. How am I supposed to eat these french fries without ketchup? Now, this is actually a hardship, by the way, just so you know, because I, I can't eat french fries without ketchup. But, but yeah, that's somebody posted that. Like, this is really, really first world problems. Another person said, the heated seats, the heated seats in my car don't, even, don't heat evenly. I think it's time for a new car. <laughs> oh, man. I think this captures what sometimes is our mentality, right? So maybe we need to wrap our minds around the fact that we do have a lot. And if we have a lot, then what does God say to us if we have a lot? What is God saying to you this morning who has a lot? In Luke 19, it says, Jesus entered, uh, verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So Jesus kicks off, chapter 19 kicks off with Jesus introducing this wealthy tax collector. And the word wealthy there is actually, uh, it's an accentuated word in the original language. It means extremely wealthy. Like he had, you know, a fleet of cars. He had private jets. He had multiple vacation homes. This guy had, he was loaded. Okay, that's how Jesus is presenting this guy. His name is Zacchaeus, and he has a lot of money. Now, to be clear, um, there's nothing inherently wrong with having a lot of money. In fact, there's no place in the Bible where it says, okay, this is too much, by the way. Just, this is too much money. You can't have this much. If it, it's immoral to have this much money. No. Money is actually amoral. It's actually the love of money that's the problem. Right? When money has us, that's where it's problematic. 
And we all know this, you don't have to have a lot of it to love it. Isn't that true? Okay, maybe you don't agree with me on that one. So having a lot is really not the problem. The Bible does have something to say to those of us who do have a lot. And so Jesus introduces Zacchaeus in in chapter 19, but if you go to chapter 18, there's another rich person that's introduced. He's this rich young ruler who approaches Jesus and he says to Jesus, he says, okay, Rabbi, I have followed all the rules. I've been obedient. I've done all the right stuff. How can I inherit eternal life? Like he's... He's, he's concerned about his eternal well-being. He's concerned about getting into heaven. And so he comes to Jesus as a rabbi and says, what must I do to be saved? Right? And Jesus kind of sees through the question. He sees this man's heart. And he realizes, realizes this man actually loves his wealth. And he knows that he's wealth. He's a rich young ruler. And so Jesus responds and says, hey, just go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And come follow me. Now that statement there, we focus in on the first half of that, that statement that Jesus makes, that go sell everything, have and give it to the poor, as if, wow, what a child. But here's, the, uh, notice what Jesus says, do that and follow me. So Jesus is inviting him to be a disciple of his. He's inviting him to actually find the greater riches in Christ. And he says, go sell everything, have and give it to the poor. And this is how this man responds in verse 23. He says, but when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. This is kind of an ironic statement right here. He became very sad, for he was very rich. Like those two don't usually go together. Sadness and having a lot of money. Doesn't usually go together. But in this case, this is happening. I think what's implied here is it would have been easier if this man didn't have a lot. It would have been easier for him to, fo- be, to follow Jesus if he just didn't have a lot. Now, I understand that idea, right? It's easier to follow Jesus if I just didn't have to give up so much. I remember when I was in Bible school, I, I drove to Bible school in my 1969 Chevy Impala. Robbie, do you remember my 69 Impala? Robbie was in Bible school with me. <clears throat> it was a, a car that I bought right before I went to Bible college. I paid 200, no, I paid $300 for it. It was a junker, really, but it got me there, you know. It was an old car. It was a two-door Chevy Impala yellow, banana, banana yellow with a black top. And um, it was a junker, and, uh, and all my friends, they call it, the Latino friends call it the Cholo Mobile, you know. Um, I, I would let anybody borrow that car. Like total strangers at Bible school walking, hey, I hear you have a car I can borrow. Yeah, sure, here, here's the keys, no problem. Borrow my car. I go to the gas station. There's a guy standing there with a sign. Said, "Hey, we'll work for food. You need to borrow a car? You can borrow my car. Anybody could borrow my car. That was no problem with that '69 Chevy Impala, right? Then I get married, and I married Christy, and and uh, we decided that that Impala had to go. So we bought a 1984 Honda Accord. It wasn't new, but it was relatively new, and it was nice. I mean, it had a cassette player. <laughs> I, I was. I, I, was, I was in heaven. I was like, man, Keith Green playing in my cassette player, you know? And, um, <clears throat> and then suddenly a Bible school student comes over and says, hey, Rich, can I, can, I, can I borrow your car? And I'm like, well, you got to fill out this application first. 
Like, I don't know. I, I, I got to see your credit report. I need to see your, your insurance history, you know. I don't know if I can let you borrow my car. Like, for, for me, in my mind, that 69 Impala was, well, it was a little. But my 84 Honda Accord, that was a lot. And it was hard to part with, with what is a lot. And I had to go through this spiritual exercise inside of me to get comfortable with just lending my car. I told you about this with my truck. I just, you know, I bought a truck recently and not recently, a year ago. And, um, and I'm, you know, I'm talking, I gave a message on generosity and, you know, lending stuff and whatever. And I bought this truck and that same weekend, my neighbor comes and says, hey, I see you got a truck. Can I borrow your truck? And my kids were at my house and they were like sitting in the, <laughs> they all looked at me like, what are you going to do? <laughs> I'm like, sure, Kevin, borrow my truck, you know. Because <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to partial. I get what's going on in this young man's mind as, he's, as he goes away sad because he was very rich. And so the conclusion that Jesus reaches concerning this young man is found in verse 24. It's actually considered one of the hard statements of Jesus. There's several in, in, in the Gospels. <clears throat> he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, the, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the idea presented here by Jesus is nearly impossible to be wealthy and get into the kingdom of God. But then he follows it up. I said, but with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible, right? See, I think our problem sometimes is that we think that money will satisfy us. Like sometimes there's, there, we, we equate happiness with having a lot. Like I'm happier if I have a lot, right? But what we've discovered is that that's not exactly true. In fact, a lot of research has gone behind it. Princeton University uh, actually did a study on this. To, 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 it was, called, it was a, a happiness study. And they were trying to determine does more money make somebody happy or happier? And so they discovered, they, they have, have some conclusions. They concluded that if you make $5,000 a year, you are definitely less happy than a person who makes $50,000 a year. We would say, yeah, I need more than five. I mean, these days, gas alone will cost me $5,000 a year, right? Yeah, I need more than, more than that. But then they found that if you make $20,000 a year, you're only, and I don't know how they measured this, but you're only 12% less happy than someone who makes $100,000 a year. You're only 12% less happy. Like, you're, you have 88% happiness that the guy who makes $100,000 makes. But then he found that there was relatively no difference in happiness between those who made $100,000 a year and those who make $10 million a year. In fact, what they found was a person who makes $10 million a year um, actually struggles with some anxiety over how to manage the $10 million a year. Right? And so you hear me say this, and you're like, well, Rich, I'll take my chances with the $10 million. <laughs> right? We'll see if I'll be happy or not. But see, oftentimes we think that money will satisfy us. I think something else that we think is that money will make me significant. Like I determine my value by how much I have. I get my real worth from my net worth. Instead of finding my significance in Christ, in the riches of Christ, I find my significance in the stuff that I have. 
sometimes we think that a lot of money will make me secure. That we find our sense of security from having stuff instead of our security being found in Christ, right? And so we feel like if I just had more, then I don't, need to, I don't need other people. I don't need to depend on other people, right? But here's what subtly happens when we have more is that, yeah, we don't necessarily need other people, but here's what happens. We, we, Jesus sort of becomes, I mean, I like Jesus and he's nice, but I don't need him. I don't have to pray for my daily bread because after all, I have a pantry full of bread. I don't really need Christ to supply my needs. I don't think that we do that intentionally. I don't think any of us wants to say, I don't really need God. But when we think that money is our security, it oftentimes goes in that direction. This is why Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is in Luke 18. Luke 18, Jesus introduces, uh, or he's this, this rich young ruler is introduced. But then um, we have another character that's introduced in Luke 19, Zacchaeus. He's also very wealthy. Zacchaeus has a lot, he's extremely wealthy, but he knows that deep down inside something is missing. Like there's something that he's searching for, something more that he wants, and he can't seem to find it, even though that he has, even though he has all of this wealth, he still hasn't found true happiness, true satisfaction. And he thinks that maybe Jesus has the answers. This is what it says in Luke 19, verse 3. He says, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, like he's the Joe Pesci of the Bible, right? Being a short man, he could not. Like he's in the crowd, and he wants to see Jesus, but he can't see above the crowd, so he climbs up because of the crowd. So he ran up ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now get this mental picture. There's Jesus. He's walking down this road. There's a crowd of people around him. You know, people trying to touch Jesus, reach out to Jesus. Verse 5 says, when Jesus reached the spot, when he gets to the spot where Zacchaeus is, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be a guest of the sinner. Now, the reason he's called a sinner is not because he was wealthy, by the way. In fact, in that culture, they believed that if you were wealthy, it's because God had blessed you that way. And if you were poor, it's because somehow or another you were being cursed by God. That really wasn't the reason why he was a sinner, at least how they were. He was a sinner because he was a chief, it was what he was doing. He was a chief tax collector. He worked for the occupation forces of the Roman Empire. He was their agent in collecting taxes from his own people. And it was a dirty occupation. Zacchaeus was chief among them. He became very rich by cheating, by manipulating, by cooking the books, by, you know, using uneven scales. That's how he became very wealthy. And because of that, he was considered a sinner. And so that's his profession. But Jesus comes along and says, hey, I want to hang out with you, Zacchaeus. Like, I want to hang with you. I see, like, the same way that Jesus just right before saw through the heart of that rich young ruler who had done all of the rules, had followed all the rules and yet was attached to wealth, he also saw in Zacchaeus' heart a hunger for something more. And so he says, I want to hang out with you. I want to, I want to be with you. And so this is pretty amazing. I mean, Zacchaeus probably never sat or had a rabbi at his house for dinner. 
And so this happens. And then when he meets Jesus, something significant happens in Zacchaeus' heart. We don't know exactly what happens. It doesn't tell us everything that happens. We just know that something significant happened. He finally found what he was looking for. And he couldn't buy it on the internet. He couldn't get it off of the rack. You know, he couldn't find it in his portfolio. It was something that he could not quantify. And he found it. Not in those things, but he found it in meeting this homeless rabbi by the name of Jesus. He found the riches of Christ. <clears throat> Zacchaeus encounters Jesus and it changes him. And it changes how he views every aspect of his life, including his money. What it says in, in verse 8, after meeting Jesus, says, look, Lord, this is his response, like, he has his salvation encounter with Christ, and this is his response. Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. I just give it away, right? And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Meeting Jesus, Jesus impacted how he handles his money. And it's sad, really, when followers of Jesus, we don't handle our money the way followers of Jesus, that we handle our money the way the world handles his money. It's sad that we do that, right? So imagine what would happen if, in our community if, and, in, and around the world if we began to respond to Zacchaeus the way he responded to Zacchaeus. See, it's not, it's not, it's less about having a lot and it's more about what you do with what you have. That's why I asked the question, what do you do when you have a lot? What do you do when you have a lot? Zacchaeus becomes radically generous. He found the riches in Christ and he's no longer hungry to get more and more. Instead, he gets more so that he can, so that he can be generous and, and give to those, who, those in need. This is, what Zac, this is Zacchaeus' response. And I wonder what would happen if that was the impact that we had. There's a, a guy by the name of Christian Smith. He wrote a book. Uh, I wish I would have been his publisher. I would have helped him out a little bit with marketing because it didn't really, it wasn't not a big selling book. And they, I would have started with the title of the book. The title of the book is, is Passing the Plate, Why American Christians Don't Give More Money. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, nobody's going to buy that book. <laughs> nobody's going to buy that book, right? But essentially, he talks about how, you know, if, um, if, if, if American Christians just simply took the, the charge to, to, be, to be faithful in our tithing, like we just tithe, that that would actually free up six, uh, 46 billion more dollars for kingdom work around the world. 46 billion more dollars would have, and this was written back in 2008, so I imagine it's even a lot more today, but back then, in 2008, 46 billion dollars would be freed up for kingdom work, which means, and he translates it this way, 150,000 new indigenous missionaries, 50,000 additional theological students in the developing world, Five million more microloans to poor entrepreneurs, food, clothing, and shelter for all 6.5 million current refugees in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. All the money needed for a global campaign to prevent and treat malaria, and enough resources to sponsor 20 million needy children worldwide. Just if we tithe, that could happen. But just that, right? <clears throat> And then he makes this obvious conclusion. He says, reasonably generous financial giving of ordinary American Christians would generate staggering amounts of money that would, and here's the key, change the world. If we're just reasonable in our giving, we could change the world. 
In many ways, that's why we do Kingdom Builders. Part of uh, the heart behind Kingdom Builders is we want to change the world. It's not about us. Some of you may not know this, but like we, we rent this facility. We don't even own it. Some people would say to me, would it be wiser to just go ahead and save all that money you're giving away and buy yourself a building and do that? But go back to that slide of the 70, the, the 70 out of, out of 100. <clears throat> it's like, four, yeah, this one right here. How can I... <clears throat> How can I concern myself about a building when 70% of the world has never heard the name of Jesus Christ? This is why we do this. This is why without shame, I'm going to ask you to give, and I'm going to ask you to give generously to Kingdom Builders because we want to see people give their life to Jesus Christ and follow him. This is is Zacchaeus' response in verse 8. It says, Here... You know, he meets Jesus and this is how he responds. Here and now I give. Like I'm not going to wait till later. I'm not going to go through these mental gymnastics of trying to figure out when do I have enough money so I can become generous. Here and now I give. I'm going to look at what I have and I'm just going to say this part is this part's for God and this part I'll try to live off of. Here and now I give. So, Kingdom Builders, this year we have an opportunity to change the world. This year through Kingdom Builders and Global Missions Park, we're going to be, we're going to be, we're helping plant churches in Rotterdam, Netherlands, in the Central Asian Republics, uh, Central Asian Republics of Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. We're helping plant churches on the Comoro Islands. We're helping plant churches in India and in Bangladesh. Just this year. Your generosity this year will help plant churches in those. Imagine, imagine the impact of the first ever Assembly of God Church in the Comoro Islands. This year, locally, uh, there's a young man by the name of Josh Hotsteller who pastors in Leon, Iowa, has a heart for people and a heart for youth, and has grown his church in that town, and we're going to help him buy a building so that they can expand their ministry opportunities. This year, through Kingdom Builders, we're going to champion the lives of our future leaders, and there's, we're going to give to our local, there's other projects, one, but one of the many is helping our campground, Sunstream Retreat Center in Ogden, Iowa. I don't know if you realize this, but, but every year, every year, every summer, hundreds of students, young students, go to Ogden, Iowa to, uh, to this campground. Many of them go there and don't even know Jesus. Like they, ha- they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They go there, and by the end of that week at camp, they've given their life over to Christ. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. Many of them feel a call into missions or ministry. In fact, if you polled missionaries around the world, many of them will say, yeah, I was called to missions when I went to camp. That's why we want to champion the lives of our future leaders. That's why we will give generously to those kind. And there's many other, many other ways, but this is how we're changing the world. So I asked you last week, I said, hey, uh, or last few weeks, to take this, pray about it, and just a simple prayer. Ask God, what can I do for Kingdom Builders in 2022? What can I do? 
And you know, because I know Jesus, and I know, I know, I know that it just brings joy to the heart of God when that's how we pray. When we say, God, what do you want me to give? When we pray that way, I guarantee you, if you sincerely pray that way, I guarantee you, you heard an answer. I guarantee you God spoke to you. You probably had to gulp a little bit. Mm, that's a lot. <laughs> so I'm just asking you to be generous and be, and, and be obedient. Just do what he asks, okay? And he'll provide. He'll take care of it. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's all stand and pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for, for who you are. Lord, I, I don't personally have any right to ask anybody to be generous, to give extravagantly. That's, I don't have that authority, God, but I know that you've asked and you proved it by what you've done. You came and gave your life. You were generous to us way before we ever even thought of generous. You, you were generous to us when we were shaking our fist at you, God. So today, Father, I ask that you to speak to our hearts. And Father, may we, in faith, step out and together change the world. That people will come to know Jesus Christ. That through the efforts of, of Life Church here in Coralville, there in Cedar Rapids and in Wilton. Father, I pray for the, for the brothers and sisters in Cedar Rapids. I pray for the brothers and sisters in Wilton who are now also just thinking about this, Lord God, what, what they can give. I pray, God, that you would just speak to us and that we as a church, Father God, will change this world. This is what you've called us to. This is what we're committed to. In Jesus' name, amen.